Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories and they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription and that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, on to the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. Hello and welcome to part two of our interview with Professor Norman Davis, the author of George II. I do recommend you listen to part one if you haven't already. Today, Norman continues to tolerate me much as he would tolerate a particularly dim student, as he explains the British monarchy in its European and pluralistic context. And of course we discuss the topic of slavery and George Augustus's connection to it. I do hope you enjoy the episode, and please do subscribe. So another thing I think that he's been described as, George Augustus, is the king of slavery. Oh, where did you hear that? That was just in some, some research that uh, our reviewer had obtained. Well, I think that came from me. Um, uh, it, it's, a, of course, a bit of an exaggeration. I... I, I proposed um, that title for um, a piece uh, which the Penguin publicity people sort of swallowed, I think. Um, but I think it was put out, and so I'm glad that it's come round. But, um, yeah, um, I chose that sensationalist title because uh, his connection to slavery has been completely ignored. No, nobody has written a sentence about it. But the, the latest biography of George II, <clears throat> uh, published in 2010 by a man in Cambridge called Andrew Ta- uh, Tom- Thompson, uh, which is um, to be commended in many ways, uh, he, uh, he makes a very good effort at um, uh, writing the, the, the wrongs, the sort of overturning the vilification that um, had, had come our monarch's way. But he doesn't say a word about the slave trade, although during this reign, 1733 to 1760, the British slave trade became, you know, leader in the field in the same way as the, the Royal Navy did. I, I've got, you know, two or three pages about it. But it is amazing that... that um, because this king has been largely erased from history, like he's not even in 1060 and, uh, 1066 and all that, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's been rubbed out. Because he's not present, nobody has connected the, um, the ruling monarch with the rise of the slave trade, which is, is uh, an interesting topic. And what was his relationship with it? Well, he, he was governor of the South Sea Company, which was at the heart of the slave trade. It all came from the Treaty of Utrecht when uh, Britain secured this monopoly on, on the, uh, you know, the asiento, on the, um, the trade with Spanish colonies, an important part of which was a trade in slaves from Africa to the Caribbean and South America. And the company... Uh, created for that was the South Sea Company, which was the object of this mad um, um, speculation. How many people talking about the South Sea bubble tell you is all about slavery? Um, 
that was where the money was coming from. It's interesting. Uh, yes, we, we had a piece, uh, an interview with Thomas Leveson, who's written a book on the South Sea bubble. But it, it's, it's interesting because obviously the, uh, the, the bubble is, is the thing that really attracts the attention. But as you say. Yeah, well, after the bubble, the South Sea Company continued. Uh, my man <laughs> um, stops being the governor just before the bubble. He's governor as Prince of Wales from when he comes uh, to 1718. Then his father, George I, takes over as governor of the South Sea Bubble, South Sea Company. And then when um, George II succeeds in 1727, he takes back the governorship of the South Sea Company and holds it to the end of his reign. He also founds the Royal African Company. There's, there's a reorganization of the African trade during his reign, anyhow, and a new company is founded, and he provides the charter for that. No, there's a, lot, a big story to be talk, told. He, uh, George II founds the colony of Georgia in America, named after him, of course. Uh, and um, Georgia was going to be a slave-free state. It was um, founded uh, at the initiative of a, an idealist philanthropist called James Oglethorpe, who intended to rehabilitate it, uh, uh, re rehabilitate you know convicts and felons and the poor of London. Um, once it was established, it was established in 1732, uh, and after about ten years, the um, the planters there decided they couldn't compete with other colonies because slave labor was more profitable. So slavery was brought into Georgia um, with the approval, of course, of our man. But the, again, the interesting thing to me is not all that. That's, that's, a, that's, that's the British side of it. George Augustus was the biggest surf master in the electorate, serfdom existed in Germany until the early 19th century. And George Augustus was brought up you know, accepting serfdom, which was pretty horrible. The difference between serfdom and sl slavery is, um, is a topic for, for um, experts. Uh, but... On the surf, the serfs were tied to the land, you know, they, they were beaten or they could be killed by their, uh, their owners with impunity. Um, they were entirely dependent on their, um, on their masters. <clears throat> the one thing that couldn't happen to a serf, they couldn't be sold off individually like slaves. They were sold off together with the estate, but that was no joy for the uh, for the serf. Um, how many of these the people going on about slavery now ever compare it to serf serfdom? It's a very sort of insular way of looking at it. Well, I, I, uh, serfdom was was widespread all, all across um, what was then German. Well, it was not Germany, but all the the various well, states. in France as well. You know, the, um, you know the the ancien regime. Um, uh, France, Germany, Poland, Russia. Slavery was still going in Russia, as well as serfdom. 
So another thing he had to deal with in England, but um, uh, and speaking to you, I'm interested to know if he had to deal with something similar. Um, was was the 45 with Bonnie Prince Charlie and and reaching yeah. as far south as Derby? Did he have any? I mean, I'm interested to know how much that affected him, but also did he have to deal with any uh, any incursions into his own uh, territory in, in Germany? Uh, yeah, interesting you say England. Do you know where Bonnie Prince Charlie landed? In Scotland? Yeah. That's Which not England. was part of the Act of Union and, and of course, Great Britain. Great Britain yeah. No, yes. but this is why language is important. Yes. Most English historians don't know the difference between England and Scotland. Or Great Britain, and it's very important. Okay, um, he was king of Great Britain, and uh, in Great Britain, his um, title was um, opposed by the the Stuarts, the Pretenders, and um, there were two big Stuart Jacobite risings, 1715, 1745. Uh, he um, he dealt with that pretty effectively. Um, in 1745, he, he actually set, uh, set up a camp in Finchley outside London um, uh, in case the Jacobites got as far as, as London, which they didn't. And his son, Cumberland, who was a, a pretty awful character, um, of course, uh, took the, uh, the army north and... Um, basically destroyed Gaelic civilization. But in Germany, the threat was not from um, sort of local claimants, it was from France. Han- Hanover is you know, to the west of Germany, um, and the, the French were the hereditary threat, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, and um, the French were constantly trying to uh, cross the Rhine and invade um, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the only time during his reign when they actually captured Hanover was in 1757 in the Seven Years' War, which was the, for him, you know, a major, major threat. Fortunately, he uh, he won over Pitt, William Pitt, the the elder, who had spent most of the 20 previous years denouncing what he called, you know, the, um, what did he call it? The, uh, you know, the terrible electorate. Um, Pitt realised that uh, he had to fight the French both on land and on the continent and on sea, um, on the sea. And uh, Britain was pretty successful. Well, very successful. That's the time when they, we got India, when they captured Canada. Indeed, the Annus Mirabilis. Yeah. Um, George II Augustus is not the first monarch to have a have dual sovereignty. There's Henry II, for example, um, with the Angevin Empire. And they were all, uh, 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 and of course his son John and, 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 Richard, uh, and Richard the Lionheart. The, these kings were always accused of caring more for their ancestral homelands than they did for England. Was that, a, English, yeah. <laughs> was that an accusation that... Um, well, it's a bit of a joke to my mind. Um, I, I say to have multiple crowns, 
was the norm. The Stuarts throughout the 17th century were kings of Scotland, kings of England, and kings of Ireland. There were three countries joined. This was a composite state, right? One sovereign, three crowns. Uh, so, you know, what was their homeland? Uh, well, the Stuarts were Scottish. You know, England was was not the uh, the home of the Stuarts. You, you mentioned these distant medieval monarchs. Mm. The predecessor of the um, of the Hanoverians to have uh, you know dual sovereignty was William the William of Orange. He continued to be stadtholder of Holland whilst being king of England in his case. Uh, jointly with with Mary. In the Netherlands, he appointed a, if you like, a manager, I forget the Dutch title, but nonetheless, he he was still the um, sovereign ruler of uh, England and uh, Scotland and Ireland and the Netherlands. This is another composite state. And and where does he stack up as an elector? Is he in the Premier League of electors? Well, as you know, there were, whatever, 365 states of the Holy Roman Empire. He was one of the, um, uh, by his time, how many were there? Um, six secular electors. Like, absolutely the top, you know, the premiership of, uh, of Germany. He um, wielded his vote in the, um, uh, the elections for the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and he was one who voted against the Habsburgs in, in 17, whenever it was, 1742 or 1740. And then, of course, the Habsburgs came back after an interval. Um, but sure, no, he, he, he was certainly a um, premier division. Uh, he was um, uh, active in the League of Princes of the Holy Roman Empire who were divided between Catholics and Protestants. And uh, the Protestant League was uh, something he was um, very concerned about because his neighbour, the Elector of Saxony, who incidentally had become King of Poland recently, so uh, you've got another composite state, Saxony-Poland, but the Elector of Saxony turned Catholic in order to become King of uh, Poland. But once and succeeded in re, be, remaining the president of the uh, of the Protestant princes of Germany, you know, and our man was unhappy about that, as as a lot of German Protestants were. You know, if uh, if you turn Catholic, you should join the the Catholic League of Princes. So that was quite an incident. Aha, incidentally, religion uh, is is very interesting. All. Lutheran princes in Germany, not the Catholics, but all Lutheran princes were, um, they had the title of uh, Episcopus Supremus, the supreme bishop of the head of the Lutheran church in their state. George Augustus was the supreme head of the Lutheran state in the electorate of Brunswick Lunenburg. He then became supreme head of the king of the Church of England. So he had two. He was supreme head of both of them, right? But whoever tells you that? You well, know, I think I think 
I think you have now, fi uh, finally, it seems. Well, uh, it's pretty important, isn't it? If the, the head of the Church of England is not an Anglican. Absolutely. He's not only not an Anglican, he's the head of another, another church. But such was the desperation to have a non-Catholic on the throne. Yeah, well, it was desperate and uh, very badly informed. They didn't even know who they were, uh, who they were inviting to be monarchs. Lucy Worsley, for example, talks about Hanover being a dinky little principality. But you've just uh, described how large it was. And, and, yeah. Yeah. and important. And um, the implications of inviting a person like that to be the British monarch, you know, was, the implications were huge. And they only found out about it, I think, afterwards. And um, it's probably the last theme, you see. The... Um, British history has been written, um, you know, the Whig interpretation of history was that there was a revolution in 1688, in the Glorious Revolution, and from that date onwards, the Parliament was, um, you know, the most important inst institution, laid down the laws which the monarchy had to follow. Well, the Hanoverians, as you call them, didn't follow that they uh, and Walpole didn't like Walpole with George II took complete control of Parliament through corruption, bribery, placement, and uh, everything that Namia describes. And it was only after George II that Parliament, as it were, reasserts itself uh, and um, moves towards the constitutional arrangement of the 19th century, which everybody, as it were, took uh, to have been built in stone since 1688, and it, it wasn't. Um, uh, so I, I think our man has got a, an important place in the history of Parliament. Absolutely. I mean, it's, a it's a fascinating book. We've got it reviewed. Um, it's on our website, so um, I'll, I'll... I did George II for my A-levels, though, um, and it was so English centric. I mean, you know, I, we were aware that he was an elect, elector of Hanover, obviously, but it, there was um, even in our two modules of the A-level of, of European and English modern history, we only looked at um, uh, George II and, well, and George I uh, from an English standpoint or British standpoint. Mm. Well, that's how it is. That's how it is. Yeah. Yes. Oh well, I, I, I don't don't usually re read reviews, but um, uh, well, I can, I can, uh, I can, I'll send it over to you. Um, and it, 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 I just, I just wanted to thank you because I know you know uh, having an hour to talk talk me. You're, I know you you mentioned how busy you are. Have, have you got? Are you working on something else at the moment? Yeah, I'm writing a history of Galicia. Um, Austro Hungarian Galicia, which is now partly in Poland and partly in Ukraine, completely vanished kingdoms, which were Indeed. one of my, one of my ideas. Yeah, um, but absolutely fascinating. Uh, similar problems. I, I probably got got it from studying Polish history. How um, how peculiar uh, sort of national versions of history are, how they distort 
and English history in particular is very nationalistic. Uh, I, I suppose um, we're all looking back at, at, at the past from our um, f- from the country as it is today. Mm-hmm. I guess assuming that you know um, it was the like as we think it is today. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, you wouldn't believe it from um, my accent, but. Um, um, I, I'm, uh, I've got a lot of Irish in me, um, so right. I certainly appreciate the English-centric view of, of history. It is very frustrating. Well, I, I've got a lot of followers in, in Ireland. Um, uh, um, in fact, I gave a, a lecture, was it last week, to the city of Armagh, which was fascinating. Um, not some, I don't know a lot of the, the details, but... Um, just a matter of being aware of how um, biased um, historical narratives can be, uh, and the, the language that you—if you, if you don't get the language straight, you, you can't think straight about it. Well, I think—I mean—that's probably you—you've got that impression from some of our questions because they come from certainly on my side from being educated in an English school by an English teacher. That's what history should be. It's about showing how the past was different from the present. Uh, as you yeah. say, a lot of people start with these fixed ideas about the world as they w- w- would like it to be and then project it into the past. Well, Norman, I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you very much for your time, and I've certainly learned a lot. Good. All Thanks the best. So Thank you. Well, there you are. Hopefully you can now confidently discuss the Hanoverians, or, as we should call them, the Brunswick Lunebergs. Coming soon, we have Tessa Dunlop discussing her new book, Army Girls, the secrets and stories of military service from the final few women who fought in World War II. Now this is an important subject, and Tessa has done fantastic work in ensuring women who served during the war are given a voice. We also have Anne O'Brien talking about her new novel, The Royal Game, a story of romance, bloody violence and the Wars of the Roses. So do subscribe and give us a great rating if you can. Thank you and good night.